This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Well, here's the headline from ESPN, Brian Flores. Trust was lost with Miami Dolphins after 100000 per loss tanking offer from the owner. Now, this is a story that has a lot of different angles, racism and discrimination, not the least among them. Are there any religion angles in this big sports story? And I guess I wonder out loud, do sports reporters outdo regular news reporters in overlooking religion ghosts? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. We review our definition of a religion ghost, and why do they keep popping up in sports stories? Wow, I think I could give you about 20 straight minutes just on those two questions right there. Let's see how restrained I can be. The The religion ghost is when you're reading a story and you sense that there is a religious issue here that is at the heart of understanding the story and what's going on in the lives of the people in the story, but the story never delivers the religion content that lets you know why these people believe what they believe, do what they do, and are who they are. In the world of sports, one of the reasons I think religion ghosts keep coming up is just to be really honest with you, I think the world of sports is much more culturally diverse in terms of income levels, race, religious backgrounds, zip codes, and every way else that we kind of map out culture in our land, I think sports is much more diverse than, say, Hollywood. And it's much more diverse than newsrooms between Washington, D.C. and Boston. It's much more diverse than the most elite forms of higher education in America. What you have with sports is you have a host of different people, black, white, all every conceivable type of culture in America. And in the world of sports, they often end up on the same field. You, you end up with farm boys out of the Midwest playing on teams with people from urban Atlanta and L.A. and whatever. And because there's a greater diversity there, I think there's a better chance that you're going to have people in those newsrooms and in those sports stories for whom faith is a large part of who they are and what they do. And to be blunt about it, this is particularly true of men and women who have grown up in the African-American church. So was that restrained enough? Did I open the door to our discussion? Yes. A question, kind of a preliminary question before we get into the meat of the Brian Flores story. Yeah. Which do you think is more haunted with these religious ghosts, straight news or sports news? Well, once again, I think sports is more culturally diverse than some of the straight news that we get, which tends to be dominated by Hollywood and politics. I think the world of sports is more culturally, religiously 
economic levels, every other way we would do class, issues of class, that the world of sports is more diverse than, say, the people that Washington, D.C. reporters encounter day after day or people who cover Wall Street in New York encounter day after day or people who cover Hollywood encounter day after day. And as a result, you often have people, superstars even, coaches, major players talking about their own lives in faith terms. And there, there's a God language level of this and that, you know, people just referring to God or whatever. But then the cases I'm really interested are in is when you have major media stories about someone like Cooper Cup is a, the hot example right now going into the Super Bowl, the superstar overachieving wide receiver for the Los Angeles Rams and someone that in every single story you read about him and his wife, I believe her name is Anna, you read about their selflessness and their giving and how they got married so young because of their love for each other as sweethearts. And and then you hear all this, and then when they describe their lives, they describe their lives in terms of faith, family, God, a calling. This is what I, you know, this is what my Christian faith calls on me to do. But when when you when you see stories consistently in which the character of the individuals is made a central part of the drama of the story, yet the reporters seem hesitant to let the participants in the story talk about their own lives in faith terms, that's where the ghosts get really powerful to me. And the Cooper Cup story is one example of that. And right now, you know, he, he was the first player, I think one of three or four players in history to win the Triple Crown in receiving in the NFL, most touchdowns receiving, most yards receiving, most number of receptions. And so the word crown has been following him around all year long. Well, he answered that by coming up with a hat that he wears at his press conferences and stuff like that. And the hat has a reference to 1 Corinthians 9.25, and the hat says, do it to get a crown that will last forever. In other words, a crown that's more important than the triple crown, so to speak. And, of course, that's a, the full verse there is, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training which is the story of this young man's life as an overachiever. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So he's taken his own media image as this overachieving guy who has turned into, some people think, the most valuable player of professional football this year. He's taken this discussion about him and the Triple Crown and his abilities as an overachiever, and he's put it right on his hat for all to see. And it's a hat made by him and his wife for their own causes and to raise money for the things they believe in at their website. What could be more obvious than that? Yet go online and try to find a reference to that hat in any of the long, long stories being written about this young man at this point, and uh, you're not going to find it. So... Why do you think it's not being found? Why do you think the reporters can st literally stare at the kid's hat 
in a live press conference, read what's written there, and not at least ask a question about it. Well, you mean like the, the, the Bible verses on the side of Steph Curry's shoes, which cost him his deal with Nike, apparently, which is a rather big story, but, you know, the Scripture part didn't play much of a role in that. Or, you know, when Kevin Durant, you and I have talked about this one before. It's one of my all-time favorites. When Kevin Durant went to the Golden State Warriors and everybody was talking about how four members of the team walked in, Thompson, Curry, Iguodala, and I forget who the other one was. They walked in and met with Kevin Durant, and he walks out 10 minutes later and says, I'm going to Golden State, even though it was less money, even though he was offered more in other ways by different teams. And like ESPN didn't mention until like 40 inches in the story, oh, by the way, those four guys had a prayer group and Bible study together when they played on the national team for the U.S. Team USA. Like, oh, maybe that has something to do with their friendship. Maybe that has something to do with why he wants to be with those three other guys. Fascinating stuff. Why do they avoid this? Well, once again, I think that sports is more culturally diverse than the journalists who are covering them. And in many cases, especially if you're dealing with a conservative Christian, I think it freaks reporters out to be covering some of these people. You know, at which point I can just give you two words, Tim Tebow. And one of the things you heard over and over when, yes, he had trouble with his throwing mechanism, but he was a leader and he he brought people together and, and all this other stuff. But he was controversial to the NFL because this is a guy that would not hide his faith. This is a guy who didn't seem capable of hiding his faith. And when people talked about, well, you know, we gave him another chance to stay in the NFL, but we didn't, one of the phrases you heard over and over, we knew that if we had him on our team, it would create a media circus. Well, why would it create a media circus? Is that because of Tebow himself, or is that because of the response of media to Tim Tebow in many cases? So to me, Tim Tebow is an, an all-time example of this syndrome, except in his case, it wasn't a ghost. It was more like Godzilla, King Kong, and Tim Tebow's faith. They were about the same size in the eyes of many reporters. One of the most interesting people I ever had a chance to interview on this topic was the late Tom Landry. And Tom Landry was very well known, of course, as NFL superstar as a coach, one of the most important coaches in the history of the National Football League. But Tom Landry once told me, he said, that he thinks it's interesting that so many people think that faith is so controversial, that people are praying for God to let them win football games. He says, but when you meet the really serious religious believers in NFL locker rooms, this isn't what they believe. They're praying that God will help them to do their best. They're praying that nobody gets injured. They're praying for the faith to understand what's going on in their lives. He says, you know, Roger Staubach isn't out there praying that the other team drops the ball, like God hit them with lightning. When you're dealing with someone whose faith is at that level, it's, it's, it's at another level. They're expressing themselves in different ways. 
And this brings us to some of the other stories that are big right now in the NFL. Well, I wanted to stay with Cup one more question here, and that has to do with a lengthy feature that promisingly was titled The Making of Cooper Cup, Los yeah. Angeles Rams receiver. When they got to what made him up, they kind of sidestepped some significant yep. facts. And it was obvious that mar- his marriage was a big part of it, and that the story was almost as much about his wife and their relationship, yet it never seemed to really punch through like, well, maybe there were religious reasons they got married so young. Maybe there's religious reasons. There was a wonderful part. I forget if it's in that story, but it's in one of the big profiles of Cup, that there was this thing that in college, you know, he went to a small school, Eastern Washington, I believe it was, and he didn't get offers from the big schools that he wanted to go to. But once he got to the school, he really dove all in. And it mentioned that his wife used to make goodie bags for him to put in the lockers of all of his teammates on his college squad. And it mentioned that they would contain cookies, and and then it just said, and passages written out by so-and-so, so-and-so. And I was thinking, any chance that that's Bible passages? I mean, is, is he like writing out pieces of the playbook or, you know, the prophet by Gabron or whatever? I mean, what is he writing passages from? You know, Beatles lyrics, you know? No, it's probably Bible verses that the two of them are writing and putting in there with the cookies and the other stuff to hand out to his teammates. Why, why can't you admit that that's what they did that was one of the things that in, endeared them to his teammates and in, endeared her to his teammates? More than a girlfriend, his wife. You know, they're helping people out in the, you know, in the locker room. Why... Do journalists have such a hard time facing these issues in the lives of these players? I just think they don't get it. So what about it don't they get? Because it's not like they haven't encountered a Cooper Cup a hundred times in yeah. their careers. On on every team that they've covered, they've found, they found one or not maybe the skill level that Cup has, but they found someone who's as driven by their religion as a guy like Tebow or Cup. Well, yeah, or someone that I've always thought was a controversial guy in a lot of different ways, but Ray Lewis of the the Baltimore Ravens, the the ultimate Raven, was someone who was very outspoken about his faith. But he also was an example, and there were kind of counterparts to him that were not religious in that locker room. And some people believe that faith divides locker rooms just as much as it unites people, that for some people it pulls them together, but in others it, it might make them morally judgmental of other members of the locker room who, shall we say, have colorful private lives and have had children with three or four different women and all this. How does a Tebow or a Ray Lewis or somebody like that relate to those people? Ray Lewis has had a colorful life himself in a lot of different ways. My point is, while you and I might assume that faith is viewed in positive terms primarily, some people view it as negative. Let me give you an example. Before this story blew up with Brian Flores, there was a piece that ran the other day at The Athletic, which is one of my favorite publications, uh, even though it's been purchased now by The New York Times, and it concerned one of my two or three biggest sports heroes 
in my life, someone that I briefly knew at Baylor University. And that man's name is Michael Singletary, Samurai Mike of the Chicago Bears and, you know, first ballot Hall of Famer. And this whole story, one of the things was, why hasn't Mike Singletary gotten another chance to be an NFL head coach? What did he learn from his failure the first time, etc.? Well, there is no reference in this to the fact that Mike Singletary is an extremely outspoken and articulate Christian, very strong on pro-life issues, sexual morality issues, married man, huge family, and they never get to that. It just says over and over, it talks about, this is Mike Singletary. This is who he is. This is who he is. But listen to this passage in the story and see if it rings any bells for you. It's talking about a conflict with the owner and the leader you know, of San Francisco when the, he was the head coach there at the 49ers. 49ers owner John York, CEO Jed York, director of player personnel Ted, I believe it's called Balky, and other executives called Singletary to a meeting. They had a trade in place with the Steelers for Ben Roethlisberger, who had recently been accused of sexual assault. Singletary vetoed the deal. He felt an obligation to Smith, who was their current quarterback, who, by the way, is a strong believer. He also believed he needed to stand for what he had been preaching. I had been telling the team I wanted a team of character, he says. I felt I had to be true to that. But if I could do it again, I'd do it differently. The offense was a consistent problem. It goes on. I think he was sabotaged in a few ways internally said Takeo Spikes, a 49ers linebacker under Singletary. Some of the conflict he brought on himself. But I enjoyed playing for him because he was a leader of men. His greatest ability is the ability to inspire and motivate. I appreciated his mentality as far as attacking a lot of things, especially in games. Spikes said Singletary related well to players of all ages and races. He was respected because he preached faith, and family while still demanding a commitment to football. Now, do you hear any religion ghosts in that passage concerning his kind of conflict with management at the 49ers? Terry, let's turn to the story about Brian Flores. It has a lot of angles, a ton of angles, uh, not just sports angles, but are there religion angles that are being overlooked in his lawsuit against the NFL? Well, I mean, everyone's going to focus on the issue of racism. And that is definitely, definitely the heart of this story. But I think it's also important for people to realize that he's not just talking about race in his lawsuit. He's citing examples of places where he thought he was asked to violate his own sense of ethics, including his claim that the owner of the Miami Dolphins wanted to pay him $100,000 a game to lose games to improve their draft position to try to be able to get Joe Burrow, now the quarterback, uh, the Bengals. And Flores refused to do that. He said he, he couldn't teach his team how to lose. And so, in effect, some people think he got fired for their seven-game winning streak when they upset several teams and all of that. And then now he's once he's out of a job, he's trying to get another job and you have all of these things related to the Rooney rule and to racism. But I think people need to realize the most explosive topic in here, in addition to race, is him pointing fingers at key people, including 
you know, John Elway and, and Denver and several others for what he views as unethical behavior. So when he announced the lawsuit, he put out a very short statement. Now, guess which part of the following statement got quoted the most. I'm going to read the whole thing now. It's just one paragraph. God has gifted me with a special talent to coach the game of football. But the need for change is bigger than my personal goals. I'm making my decision to file the class action complaint today. I understand that I may be risking coaching the game I love and that it has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. Now, if you were going to predict which words got quoted the most out of that, what would those words be? Well, anything after about the first 10 words. Yeah, especially the systemic racism thing, because people are going to interpret that as a reference to critical race theory. Some people already have. Systemic racism, of course, would also, in my personal opinion, be a good description of racism in a sinful and fallen world. When the world is fallen and broken, things systems get broken. But yes, God has gifted me with a special talent to coach. When you then read, instead of reading the stories about Flores right now, I think it's going to take a while, I backed up and read some of the stories when he was named coach in Miami. So once again, listen to this. The platitudes are never-ending when it comes to Flores, the Patriots linebacker coach and de facto defensive coordinator, who is expected to be named head coach of Miami as early as Monday, et cetera, et cetera. He's a man of faith and character, honesty and integrity, discipline and family. The next bad word you hear about him will be the first. Jumping down, talks about his family, and it talks about his relationship with a brother who's autistic, and it talks about his marriage. And then there are other people. The whole point of the story, again, once again, the point of the story is that Flores has a very unique approach to dealing with people as individuals and challenging them to work on all aspects of their own life. And on one or two occasions, people say he had a special concern with talking with NFL players about their marriages and their family and trying to get them to keep their eye on their home life as much as things about football and when at any cost football. Now, when you hear a paraphrase saying he was a man of faith and character, honesty and integrity, discipline and humility, do you hear any relationship between that sentence and the current controversy between him and several huge major players in the NFL on issues of ethics, alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera? At some point, People need to ask him what's going on and why he's taking this risk, and does it have anything to do with his faith and his commitment, to use a horrible phrase, family values. It sounds to me that his approach to dealing with football and players sounds an awful lot like Mike Singletary's approach when it's described by the players who play for him. They, they, t they use the same kind of language. So I, yeah, I really suspect that this Brian Flores' faith plays a big role in this story. And will we find that out in the days and weeks ahead? I hope so. And they may hear about this when they talk to some other African-Americans who've been head coaches. I tweeted out earlier today 
if people are trying to get a unique perspective on the Brian Flores case, I suggest they talk to Tony Dungy, Hall of Fame coach, and Mike Singletary, because I predict they would understand some of what's going on in the Brian Flores case. And, of course, Tony Dungy, in addition to being one of the most respected coaches, retired from football and in the Hall of Fame as a head coach, Dungy is an outspoken Christian and someone who has talked about the role of faith in his own life, his own work, tragedies in his life, as well as the positive things. And he would be the person that might get Brian Flores to open up and talk about that. So Flores is in still in the running, at least in, in theory, with right. uh, the Saints and the Texans, and he has vowed that if he's hired by either either of those teams or any team as a coach, he's not going to drop the lawsuit. That's a pretty brave stance yeah. to take. He, in effect, several people, including RG3, I was watching an interview with him recently, and, of course, RG3 is an outspoken Christian, and Baylor connections there from the past. He said the man has probably written his ticket out. He said, because, I think he said something just about as blunt as saying, Rich white men who count their bank accounts in the billions don't forgive people very easily because nobody makes them forgive them. And has he written his way out of coaching in the NFL again? We can hope not. I don't know anything about the ownership situation with the Houston Texans. I just know the franchise is a mess. I know at the heart of it is a quarterback who has said he would like to play for an African-American coach and has a messed up private life and has been accused of all kinds of moral issues and lawsuits and all this other stuff. But some people may remember that specifically he said he wanted to play for Flores, for Brian Flores. It would be a very courageous move right now if the Houston Texans seriously considered naming Brian Flores as their head coach. You had mentioned the Rooney rule yeah. and how it plays into this story, even into the details of this story. What is it and why is it important to, yeah. to understand Brian Flores? Well, the the best way that I've heard it explained in the coverage today on ESPN and elsewhere by Robert Griffin III and others is the Rooney rule is an attempt to fight racism with a rule. You must interview at least one or two coaches of color during the selection process to name a head coach. And at the heart of the lawsuit is the fact that Flores says that he received a message from one of his mentors, Belichick, and Belichick accidentally sent the message to Flores instead of to the another Belichick disciple who has just been named head coach of the New York Giants, I believe is the team. And Belichick punched the wrong button and sent the email to the wrong person. And he congratulated Flores on being named the head coach of the Giants. Flores hadn't done the interview yet. He was still three days away from his interview. And Flores wrote him back and went, uh, Coach, did you mean to send that to me or to this other white coach? Because obviously... Belichick was under the impression the Giants had already hired their new head coach, and they were going to do a Rooney Rule interview with Flores just to meet that racial requirement. Well, over and over and over today in coverage of this issue at ESPN and elsewhere, 
people are using the phrase, you can't change hearts and minds with legal rules. At some point, the culture among NFL owners, they're going to have to be willing to work with men who they might feel uncomfortable with some parts of their lives, might feel uncomfortable with the way they talk or the way they express themselves, and frankly, might feel uncomfortable with the fact that these men might be very powerful leaders of the 70% of the NFL personnel who are black. Well, when I hear statements like that, one of the things I think is, maybe that's why they're uncomfortable with Mike Singletary. Maybe that's why they're uncomfortable with Blind Flores. Maybe some of these African-American coaches, religion might be playing a role in their images and their problems with some of these owners, just as much as the color of their skin. It's a possibility. With only a minute here, do you think that a sports reporter is going to ask Brian Flores, is there a relationship between your Christian faith and your NFL lawsuit? That's why I'm hoping that he ends up sitting across a table from Tony Dungy or Robert Griffin III or somebody else who isn't necessarily a reporter, reporter, but someone who has come out of locker rooms and out of the culture of the NFL itself. And especially in the case of Tony Dungy, someone with the credibility with NFL leaders to ask that question and be taken seriously when the answer has to do with race, when it has to do with character, when it has to do with ethics, when it has to do with honesty, when it has to do with just truth with a capital T. I think Dungy could ask that question and get it answered. And frankly, I'm hoping that's what happens. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the Weekly on Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.